Namaste to all of you and good evening. We are now starting the discourse for this satsang. We are in the commentary of the Bhagavad Gita. The famous text of Indian spirituality called the Bhagavad Gita contains lots of teaching about yoga, especially about karma yoga, given by Krishna to Arjuna in a moment of great tension. And this teaching is given in general terms, but here in Agama, I'm making a commentary on it, trying to show the yogic meanings, the concordances, the correlations, and some of the technical yoga meanings in the understanding of the chakras, energies, and yoga in the style in which we teach it here. We are in the commentary of the sixth chapter and today I'm going to start with the strophe number 31, the shloka, as they are called in Sanskrit, a verse made of two lines, number 31 from the chapter 6. It is planned that for this season our commentary of the Bhagavad Gita will stop with chapter number 6. The Bhagavad Gita has 18 chapters all in all, but after the chapter 6, some particular themes are being dealt with, not directly our theme of yoga and karma yoga. That is why we have chosen to stop after the chapter number 6. We are still in the process of choosing, through your own voting and feedback, what you want to hear me talk about afterwards, which would be in a week or two. Um, until now, most proposals are, more, more suggestions are giving a commentary to the famous book of the Revelation from the Bible, given the fact that this is 2012 and all sorts of apocalyptic versions abound. So, it is a good idea. There are many, many symbols and it is good for you to see how clairvoyance works by which sort of symbols to understand the working of the mind of the seer who saw that. We haven't decided permanently, but that's highest on the list at this point. Back to our story, we are in the final commentaries for the chapter number 6 at the strophe number 31 in the Bhagavad Gita. And Krishna, as I said almost every time when I started a satsang meeting the last three, four weeks, just to explain to those who are for the first time in such a satsang and hear commentaries, yogic commentaries on the Gita, especially on this chapter. In this chapter, Krishna is setting a lot of standard. Krishna is clarifying. Krishna is using a lot of discrimination and it is making some things unequivocal. There are many people who in spirituality cultivate an artsy, confused, fuzzy attitude, either perhaps because that is their general style or because they do not have accurate technical information in some field and then they leave things somewhere like everything goes. Oh, it can be like this. Yeah, but it can also be like this. And it, this is a very untechnical way of looking upon things. Here Krishna is doing the opposite. 
Krishna is defining something. So you cannot say that the spiritual life is only subjective, only this, only that. Krishna is setting standards. He is at the point of now with the strophe number 31 of speaking about the state of spiritual realization. Many people have, unfortunately, nowadays in this disturbed Kali Yuga epoch in which we live, unfortunately many people have a very, very distorted, confused, fuzzy view even on the state of spiritual realization. What is spiritual realization? Who are the men and the women who are famed to have reached spiritual realization? What were they characterized of? What is it worth to it to have this state of spiritual realization? What is it characterized of, of by? And thus, there are many things which people will just live in the limbo, in the gray zone, in the no man's land. Krishna is not that person. Krishna wants to say very clearly, of course Krishna cannot say everything, but Krishna is saying quite a clear list of things. Krishna is giving quite a picture of the state of self-realization. And he therefore continues in the shloka number 31. He who being established in unity worships me who dwells in all beings, that yogi abides in me whatever may be his mode of living. First of all, this verse is one of the theistic, strong verses. This is a place where Krishna is the Eastern equivalent of Jesus. Krishna, for those of you who don't know, is considered in the East as being one of the avatars. Avatara means not a soul like you and I, who is part of this earth and the evolution of the species on this earth. An avatara, literally in Sanskrit, is a descent from above. It's not a spirit which is from here. It is a divine spirit, and that divine spirit comes onto a visit. It comes onto an inspection. So Krishna does not evolve, Krishna does not reincarnate, Krishna does not really care about his karma, Krishna is not from around here. Krishna is one of the supervisors of what's happening here. More specifically, this is an incarnation of a divine spirit. To give an image, Indian scriptures say, a hair of the chest of Vishnu fell upon the earth. That was Krishna. Like Krishna is part of Vishnu, according to the Vaishnava tradition of India. Vishnu being the preserving aspect of God. So, out of the divine consciousness, like a beam of light projected on earth and became a baby in the womb of a woman following, of course, most often the normal process of generation, and that child looked like you and I, but inside was not like you and I, because that child's body was inhabited by a soul which was a visitor to this planet. That's what avatars are. That's why the story with Jesus when he says, I am God, 
is not unique at all. It is very scandalous or was very scandalous for the ancient Jews. How can somebody dare to say such a thing? But in India it had been said before Jesus and several times. Before Krishna, another major avatara came to influence the history of India and indirectly the history of the earth under the form of the great Rama. Krishna is the eighth avatara of Vishnu, Rama is the seventh, the prior avatara of the same Vishnu. That's why in India, Rama and Krishna, although separated by at least 1,500 years of history, they are one and the same. Both of them are a visitation on planet Earth from above. That is why Krishna, without being mentally ill, can afford to say such words which sound as blasphematory, terrible, uh, scary in the eyes of somebody who is not used with these levels of metaphysics. Exactly as Jesus, sometimes when he says, I, he says, God, exactly in the same way Krishna, although he kept a pretty moderate language for most of the text, sometimes he reveals his real face, he reminds to Arjuna with whom Arjuna is speaking actually and in the previous trophy number 30 and in this one he simply doesn't speak about he who is in the supreme self like speaking abstractly he who lives in the self by the self is eternally happy right he's speaking about something now he's making it concrete he says he who dwells in me I am Shiva, I am the Cosmic Consciousness, I am God, I am the Supreme Self. So when I say that you are in the Supreme Self, I also can say it, I, you are in me, because I am that Supreme Self, and of course you are also, but you haven't realized it yet, and that's why for you it sounds as far out. For me, it sounds as the way things are, as the truth. And that is why, again, sometimes, not all the time in the Bhagavad Gita, but there are parts of the text where Krishna becomes very abrupt in this way. Those who do not understand theistic metaphysics, they quiver, because this sounds very, I don't know, cultish, sectarian. It's like somebody who is going crazy and says, I'm God. And listen here, I'm telling you what is what and all that. Remember that again, Krishna has precisely this reputation in the Indian, in the Vedic, Vedantic, Indian general spirituality. And now again, so bear with me on that. Even those of you who do not understand this personal aspect of theology and metaphysics, I'm not going to start re-explaining it now, but I'm simply calling your attention that in the Agama system of teaching, in the metaphysical workshops and other such teaching opportunities, we do explain these things pretty clearly. Here I just wanted to mention that what Krishna says is acceptable if you look at it from a certain angle. And that's why Krishna says, He who being established in unity worships me who dwells in all beings, 
that yogi abides in me whatever may his mode of living. Let's see first the conditions. He who, being established in unity, that's one, worships me who dwells in all beings. Let's renounce a little bit that Krishna is God, this worshipful thing. Who dwells in all beings? It is, this is said very clearly. The Supreme Self dwells in all beings. So Krishna says, I am Atman, which is of course the very statement of Vedanta. Tatvam Asi, you are that. Aham Brahmasmi, I am Brahman. <coughs> Krishna <coughs> actually does not deviate from the metaphysical tradition of India when he says very clearly, worships me who dwells in all beings. People who have problems with their Anahata Chakra and who find it difficult to surrender, to worship, to love. People who, for example, are a bit afraid of their Bhakti Yoga approach. Those people prefer spirituality in which you don't go too much from Anahata. Oh, in every being there is a Buddha nature. And that Buddha nature is the void. Lovely. It sounds very intellectual. It won't make me shed a tear. It won't make me quiver with devotion and get goosebumps and my hair standing on an end like, oh my God, Buddha nature, how much I love you. I do not relate effectively to it. This sounds very metaphysical and therefore very intellectual. In the same way, some people in India, they replace the divine nature by Atman or the Supreme Self. Who, he who worships the Supreme Self who dwells in all beings. Oh, that's lovely. That doesn't require you to prosternate, to kowtow, to, to weep for devotion or something. There is a Supreme Self which dwells in all the beings. Lovely. It sounds metaphysical, doesn't it? It won't produce a quiver of devotion in anybody. That's the result of depersonalizing God. You can practice religion which is not through Anahata Chakra because many people think that Anahata Chakra is oily, sugar-coated, romantic, wimpy. People who do not have Anahata Chakra, they think that the values of Anahata Chakra are too sugar-coated, too rosy, too soft and religious people are stupid and weak and emotional and this and that. Many people today <clears throat> they prefer a religion or a spirituality <clears throat> either based on Manipura Chakra like the business world, like a stock exchange, like the big corporations or a spirituality based on Svadhisthana like Walt Disney, like Hollywood based on emotions and dreams and this. That's why people take refuge, it is a symptomatic thing for Kali Yuga that people can hardly lift themselves at the level of the heart and live from the heart. And that's why the heartful religions are generally looking weird, extreme, not really familiar to most people, because people would like to relate to God via Manipura Chakra or via Svadhisthana Chakra, because that's what they have anyway in their daily lives, and that's what makes them feel comfortable. The Indian spirituality, especially a text like Bhagavad Gita, 
tells a lot in Anahata. And being in Anahata, the polarity of Anahata is superior, inferior. Exactly as you can go and touch the feet of the Dalai Lama, or as in India some people prosternate in front of the Guru, or they touch the feet of Krishna, or of Vishnu, or of Buddha, and it is a sign, you are superior, I am inferior, the grace flows from you to me, not from me to you, because you, I am the one who needs grace, I am the one who begs for happiness, for immortality, for meaning, for knowledge, then therefore it is normal to place myself lower, it is an Indian tradition that I am sitting a bit higher than you, exactly for the same psychological purpose, and some people consider it ridiculous, theatrical, useless, and indeed, of course, you can immediately dispense with it, but the idea being at the same time, therefore, that one can relate through the heart chakra as well. Remember that most people in the modern 21st century world, they simply can't relate to the heart chakra. They are ashamed, they are embarrassed, they are having lots of blockages and bad feelings about the heart chakra. And that is why if you say, I worship the Supreme Self which dwells in all the beings, I actually don't worship anybody. That's just a polite way of saying, I'm giving lip service. I worship the Supreme Self, the Buddha nature that dwells in all the beings. That's a very intellectual way of relating to the matter. If I say, I worship Shiva, or in this text, I worship Krishna, who dwells, I worship Jesus, the Son, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, that dwells in, the, in, the, in all the beings of the universe, that's automatically becoming Bhakti Yoga. It's a reverential, it's a heartful way, it's like an internal prosternation. It's like I'm prostrating myself. Otherwise, it's more cool. I'm saying, yo, oh, I, uh, I bow to, the, I worship the Supreme Self that dwells, you know. It's beautiful words, but it does not involve so much punch emotionally as really personifying the Divine. That's why in Bhakti Yoga and in many other traditions, they do a personification of the Divine, because they say that worshipping the Divine without the personal aspect loses a very important dimension of the spiritual life. Worshipping God only as a personal aspect, forgetting about the transpersonal aspect, is also losing a very important dimension of the spiritual life. That's why an integral spirituality as called in the 20th century by Ken Wilber and other Western philosophers, an integral spirituality sees a divine consciousness which is transpersonal and personal at the same time. It is oneness in multiplicity. It is oneness in diversity. It has both the differentiated aspect and the undifferentiated aspect. This being clarified, here Krishna says, he who, and there are two conditions, being established in unity, like having reached what we call oneness, a monistic, a non-dualistic view, 
like everything is the one. You look now in this hall and all you see is Shiva. All you see is God. The universe is the body of God. And I hope you do not make the grievous mistake of separating yourselves from the universe. For me, you are the universe. I'm looking and I'm seeing the earth, the hall, the sky, the nature, and you. All this is the universe. The universe, which means you included, to me, is the body of God. That is why, of course, one in a monistic attitude, one sees everything as part of one and the same reality. The ultimate essence of everything is one. And he says, he who, two conditions, being established in unity, which means having reached this vision and being able to preserve it at least for a while to keep this incredible view which contradicts logics, which contradicts reason, because our brain, which is the immediately next level, lower, is made of two brain hemispheres, which are yin and yang, and which start the duality. This is holy, this is not holy, this is pleasant, this is not pleasant, this is bright, this is dark, and there we have all the world of the opposites, the plus and the minuses of the universe. Here, some people, through the crown chakra, they manage to preserve, and that's part of the advanced yoga practices. It's not something which you learn in the first level of yoga, or even in the fourth level of yoga for the case. These are highly advanced practices. These are things which people in this school, they study in the advanced teachings, for example. And um, in, this, in this view, people try to create a non-differentiated, a non-dualistic view. And then, of course, somebody comes and steps on your toes, and you say, wow, what a jerk. What jerk? It's God. God stepped on the toes of God. The toes being God as well. Therefore, there is nothing else but a game of God with God through God. So don't worry. But nobody can live their life daily, 24-7, like this, unless they are constantly in a state of samadhi. And because of that, of course, these states last for a while, then you lose them, especially when you are challenged from outside, and that's one of the biggest challenges of advanced spiritual life, to manage to keep these states of oneness for longer, longer, longer periods of time. And he who being established in unity, managing to stay in such states of oneness for a while. Again, not perfect, but for a while. Worsh so he who having that worships me who dwells in all beings, it's not that you say all is one. Okay, all is one and I worship that one. All is one, screw the one. This You are non-dualistic, but you are disrespectful and not worshipful, and you are not, your, your apparent oneness 
is a painful, dry oneness, which is actually not the real understanding. Because the real understanding is that there is a oneness, and that oneness is sacred. That oneness is divine. You can have a feeling of oneness, which is artificially, mentally created, and which has no transfiguration in it, no quiver, or as friend Sahajananda beautifully puts it, no tremor of the heart. There is no tremor of the heart in front of that oneness. That is a oneness in which one does not worship me who dwells in all beings. Therefore, the condition of spirituality is put here in two ways. To, be, to, have, the, to have reached some degree of perception of the oneness, and to have a transfiguring connection to that, to have a tremor of the heart for that, to be touched by that, to quiver with devotion for that. That yogi abides in me, whatever may be his mode of living. Here, Krishna basically defines the bhava samadhi, the supreme type of samadhi, the sahaja samadhi, in which the mode of living does not matter anymore. He who has reached this relationship to the one, that one is, that yogi abides in me, whatever may be his mode of living. Therefore, that yogi doesn't even need to look like a yogi anymore doesn't even need to practice yogi things anymore because that yogi abides in me whatever his mode of living. Ramakrishna Paramahamsa, a great yogi of India, had reached this state and at some point he got, as a child, he got betrothed, he got technically married on paper with a young girl and he got reunited with that girl when she was of age for starting a marital life, which in India traditionally was considered around the age of 16. Ramakrishna spent some time with her, and eventually they got properly married, finally married. And then Ramakrishna, when she came and she was proclaimed his wife for good, then he told her in the presence of the disciples, he told her a sentence which was amazing when you think at the implications of it, Ramakrishna told to young Sarada Devi, he told her, now, because I am your chosen one, like you are my wife, but I also am your husband. You have chosen me just as I have chosen you. Now, he said, because you are, I am your chosen one, you can decide, I forgot the exact words, he used some very beautiful words, but right this second they don't come to me. He simply said, now if you want to attract me in the world of illusion, I am yours. Basically, in India, the woman, Shakti, is the representative of Maya, of Prakriti, of the world of illusion. And it basically Ramakrishna told her, I have reached my enlightenment. My soul is saved whatever I do from now on. I am 
abiding in Krishna, whatever will be my mode of living. Of course, it would be smart that since I spent 10, 15, 20 years of my life striving to acquire this, now I am prepared to teach it. So it would be the smartest way not to spend 20 years to reach Sahaja Samadhi and then to become a baker in a village. Theoretically, I could become the baker in the next village. But that would be kind of silly. I already have invested and I am a world-class expert in this. However, he said, now, since I am your chosen one, if you want to attract me in the world of Maya, I am at your disposal. Basically, Ramakrishna made the ultimate sacrifice. Ramakrishna told her, if you want me to stop being a yogi and attract me in Maya, sure, I'll do it. I can do that. Therefore, Ramakrishna offered the termination of his own spiritual career. He couldn't have given more than that. For him, his yoga, his spirituality was like his life. Because Ramakrishna felt now Whatever I do, either I bake bread, or I do pilgrimages, or I am going to start making money, it won't matter anymore. I am already realized. Of course, it was not the same for Sarada Devi, by the way. And this was, in a way, a formidable test which God, through the person of Ramakrishna, gave to her. Like in that moment, Sarada Devi had her future life flowing in front of her life. One alternative of my life is to live with this madman who constantly preaches yoga and is a divine madman and a religious hysteric who spends 20 hours per day teaching spirituality, who sleeps two hours per night like a mentally disabled person almost, who basically I, I will never have private time with him too much. He is going to be on a horse all day long, metaphorical horse of course, and I can live that life like living in the shadow of Ramakrishna Paramahamsa, being the wife of Ramakrishna Paramahamsa, or I can have this dude to bake bread, make money, buy us a house, maybe have a couple of kids, from him and all that. She had a choice. And Sarada, her, the choice was good because Sarada Devi, although she was a human being and like any woman, she probably wanted children, stability, something, you know, a quiet thing. Sarada Devi said, no, it is I who is going to follow you. That she surrendered like a true Indian woman. She said, you are way more experienced, I'm giving myself to you. It's true, you offered very beautifully, and thank you for that, you offered that whatever I want, you will give me. But I am a woman of decency, and I'm not going to ask anything preposterous, because the whole world will lose something great if a woman just takes Ramakrishna and draws him in a hut, and makes him into a householder. On a similar note, but less sacred, Albert Einstein himself, 
in his old age when he was teaching in Princeton University, he was teaching his students, this is quoted from one of his students, who said, Albert Einstein told me, don't, if you want to be a great scientist, don't get married so that you won't belong to a woman, but to the whole mankind. Because a woman will tend to say, you spent too much time in the laboratory. Come and have sex with me. Let's go to a party. Let's travel. A woman will selfishly take the scientist from his sacred duty because she has this personal need. Sarada Devi also had this personal need, but she stepped on it. She simply squashed it and she said, although, like every woman, I would like to see you in my bedroom, go free. I am going to follow you if I can, wherever you go, you run the show. I'm not going to use my attached desires to try to hold you down. Fly. Your beauty is exactly in the fact that you are an untamed wild man of God. And I am following you. I am not trying to hold you down. The same thing was cultivated by Mahatma Gandhi, who asked his satyagrahis, his disciples, that those who wanted to really be part of the government of India, they should not get married so that they don't have vested interests, family, obligations, children, they don't have to think about dowry for their daughters, about heritage, land, what they will give to their wife and kids, and that they can focus 100% selflessly on India, on the needs of India. It was a bit extreme, and it is much less practiced today than it once was, but the idea was the same. So that's why when Krishna says that yogi abides in me, whatever be his mode of living. That's Sahaja Samadhi. Once this oneness has been reached, and one can express it in the daily life, and one worships me who dwells in all beings, that means the person is not internalized in Samadhi. The person sees all the beings and all the world, and wherever they look, they see Krishna, they see God, they see Shiva. Then, for such a person, such a person is in Bhava, in Sahaja Samadhi, and therefore such a person abides, such a yogi abides in me, where, with whatever way he lives, whatever may he be his mode of living. This confirms the existence of Sahaja Samadhi, Bhava Samadhi, which transcends any sort of regulation, any sort of spiritual regulation or canons. People climbing their way to Nirvikalpa Samadhi, they need to follow a certain canon. People that passed over the top and they go on the other side of the mountain in Sahaja or Bhava Samadhi and they can live it out in the world, for them regulations are not valid anymore. They can whatever, whatever be his mode of living, that person is divine. Such some people in India, in Tibet, in the Christian mysticism, they practice the holy madness, the sacred madness. Some people, even in Chinese Taoism and Buddhism, some people behave like crazy. Because, you know, you can as well be, behave like a madman. 
Somebody said the real wisdom is madness for the ignorance of this world. For example, somebody dies. All the attached ignorance cry. Milarepa will start dancing with joy and laughing, rejoicing. People say, what's befallen him? Is he crazy? It's, it's, it's indecent that he comes to a funeral and he starts rejoicing and dancing with joy. What's so happy about the death of this person? Milarepa can see that the person's soul has gone in a much better and freer place and that's why Milarepa celebrates. All the attached people, they look only up their own belly button and they say, it may be true that Walter has gone to a better place, but we are not going to see him anymore. So you cry for yourself, you don't cry for Walter. You are crying for your own ignorance and for your own lack of clairvoyance and of vision. That is why some people have chosen anonymous ways of existence. Some people live in hermitages and in isolation. Some people pretended to be crazy. They played divine madness like Drukpa Kunle, the divine madman, and others. And thus, I, that's why when you think about that yogi abides in me, whatever may his, be his mode of living, it is whatever be his way of living. Because Krishna, in case you don't know or you forgot, Krishna is with Arjuna on a battlefield. And Arjuna is going to fight a jihad, a holy war. Krishna tells him, those guys are the bad guys. Wipe them out. And Arjuna says, but those are my cousins. My guru of battle arts, of martial arts, is there. If I win, I'm going to kill my relatives and a lot of valuable people. If I don't do it, I'm going to be dishonored as a coward and as a man who doesn't do his duty. What to do? Arjuna is completely despondent and lost it. That's why Krishna pushes hard here. He says, whatever may be his mode of living, including the battlefield hero. Because Arjuna says, I'm going to do some killing here. And Krishna says, it doesn't matter. You are with me, you are in me. That's very a very slippery slope, which we mention always in the Karma Yoga lectures here in the school. Now we move to the next strophe where he continues. This is the last. He now he had almost 20 shlokas of describing the spiritual reality and its standard. This is the last. Number 32. He who through the likeness of the self, O Arjuna, sees equality everywhere, equanimity we can call it, be it pleasure or pain, he is regarded as the highest yogi. Here, this has been said so many times, and Bhagavad Gita in the chapter 6 alone, at least five times until now, insisted on this equanimity. 
being equal. This equanimity does not mean, it is interpreted in the non-tantric yoga, that you have to stop from laughing, stop from frowning. You have to be completely unemotional, dispassionate, as the Christian fathers of the desert, they used the, the, their equivalent for detached. So, but this is a non-tantric view, because the tantric view is that be it pleasure or pain, like life goes on with night and day, cold and hot, pleasure and pain, it's inevitable, this is the game of yin and yang, as long as you have a moon that waxes and wanes, as long as you have the tide which comes and ebbs, as long as you have the heart which beats in and beats out, as long as you have two brain hemispheres which are plus and minus, you will always have a world of alternatives. This never stops. It's, the whole world is a yin and yang, it's a heartbeat which goes plus, minus, plus, minus, plus, minus. And that is why the tantric interpretation of this situation is not that you stop experiencing ups and downs, but internally you can see them as part of the same game. You cannot separate the valley from the hill. If there is no hill, there is no valley. As long as there appears a hill, after the hill there must be a valley, because otherwise the hill would go on up forever, and there is no hill which can go on up forever. Thus, the bigger the hill, the bigger the valley. Life is made of hills and valleys, and everybody who tries to stop that is a utopian dreamer, because the whole universe is based on yin and yang. Only at the level of the crown chakra, only at the level of oneness, there exists a bliss, a cosmic consciousness which does not abate ever. But at the level of prakriti, of the manifestation, starting with the earth, with the material plane, and finishing with the level of the mind itself, mind as well as matter, has plus, minus, hill, valley, pleasure, unpleasure, light and darkness, they are inevitable. That's the very law of this world, the very way this world is built. And that is why the tantric tradition says you can't stop that, and therefore you can experience it. You don't have to step out of it and stop experiencing it. You can have the joys and sorrows of life, but you have to be able, nevertheless, to see oneness. In the middle of that, you have to see that there is a deeper fulcrum, that there is a deeper midpoint which holds the yin and the yang as the alternatives of one and the same fulcrum, of one and of then the same pivotal point. And that's why when you read it first, it says, he who through the likeness of the self, because the self is one, so through the likeness of the self, I will comment that again in a second, say a few words. He who through the likeness of the self, O Arjuna, sees equality everywhere, be it pleasure or pain, he is regarded as the highest yogi. Remember, there are two interpretations. If you go in most of the Buddhist tradition, especially the Theravada style, 
If you go in the Indian Vedanta, the interpretation of this is you should not have pleasure or pain, stay away from pleasure or pain, so you constantly stand in the middle and you experience equanimity. Tantric tradition says experience pleasure and pain, surrender, let the world do its thing to you, but you be having equanimity inside. It is the same attitude as to aparigraha, to own or not to own material goods. It is the same dilemma as in karma, to act or to refrain from action, so that you don't create any karma anymore. And of course, as the eternal dilemma with sex, to be sexually active or not, which interpretation of Brahmacharya do you prefer for your life? Therefore here, Krishna is again having his dual language. He basically leaves it open. Krishna, he doesn't say, I prefer this or that. Everybody can read it their own way. Ascetic people say, see, Krishna says, he who does the likeness of self sees equality everywhere, be it pleasure or pain, he's regarded as the highest yogi, like you should stay and be equanimous. No smile, no frown. Just cosmic consciousness. And the tantrics who say it's okay to let your boat rock, just don't get caught in it. Don't forget the nature of the game. Allow yourself carried on in the game of Maya, knowing that it is Maya. You don't have to run squealing from Maya. You don't have to run horrified by Maya. Because Maya, the illusion, in case you don't know what Maya means, Maya, the illusion, is just one of the forms of manifestation of Shakti, the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, the consort of Shiva, the mother of the universe, the goddess. Why be afraid of Shakti when Shakti is your loving mother? Therefore, rather surrender and pray to Shakti to take you to a good place, pray to Shakti to guide you in the right way. That's the difference between the Tantric attitude and the non-Tantric attitude. The non-Tantric attitude says, better safe than sorry, I don't want to involve myself into anything, because anything is Maya and it's very slippery. And the Tantric tradition says, courageously launch your boat on the ocean, but don't forget what you are and who you are and the nature of the game, and then it's going to be fine. So here Krishna says, He who through the likeness of the self sees equality everywhere, be it pleasure or pain, tantric way or not tantric way, he is regarded as the highest yogi. That's the goal of yoga, to surpass the duality, to reach to this equality. If you are in love with a drama, then you are not prepared for oneness. Equality is beyond drama. The drama is called in Western philosophy by Hegel, it is called, and then by Karl Marx, who took the word and processed it, it is called dialectics. There are two, and those two are fighting, two opposites, electron and proton, plus and minus. 
yin and yang. And the yin and the yang boil and they make trigrams, hexagrams, the book of changes. The whole universe is just yin and yang into an infinite game and compounding and adding on over each other and creating ever more complex combinations, exactly like a binary code. If you have enough zeros and ones, you can create images on monitors, you can create 3D projections, everything comes from zeros and ones. It's just two things, just like a yin and a yang. Exactly in the same way, therefore, this is the goal. Krishna sets it very clearly. There are some people who still want to be in duality and fight. And there are some people who want peace, rest, repose. If a soul has been in samsara for a long, long time, for many incarnations, the soul starts saying, I want a rest. I've been spinning for so many millions of years in this carousel of incarnations that all I want is rest. That rest is exactly the expression of an aspiration towards a place of peace. There are people who say, oh, if the kingdom of heaven is just a place where angels are singing and everybody is so quiet, I would prefer in hell because maybe they have pubs and stripped his joints in hell, you know, it's more animated. The people who want that kind of hell, they are not prepared to let go. They are not having enough aspiration. They still want drama. They still want to run a few rounds more in samsara. They haven't been whipped for long enough to develop a total renunciation. They still want to dabble a little bit into the game. Yeah, I would like to reach enlightenment, but I wouldn't really like to let go. That's why not everybody reaches enlightenment in this life. Because intellectually, many people, after they listen to lectures and this, they say, clear, I heard Swami's lecture about the eight stages of yoga, and I know I want to reach to dhyana, and then I want to reach to samadhi. That's the highest human thing. That's lip service. You say it, but you don't mean it, and time will tell. Because how will time tell? Time will tell, are you ready to let go of the drama, of the dialectics, of the agitation, of the churning? Do you really want peace? Do you really want rest, repose? Then you want to let go of any form of polarity in that way. So, that's the highest yogi, equanimity. And Krishna said, and I promise to get back to that, how does one do that? Krishna reminds the previous shloka, saying, he who sees equality, be it pleasure or pain, and thus he is the highest of yogis, he who does that through the likeness of the self, with a capital S, through the likeness of the Supreme Self, through the likeness of Atman, through the likeness of the Shiva Consciousness, through the likeness of Me, God. Because Atman, the Supreme Self, is neither male nor female, 
It is beyond the becoming, beyond time, beyond space, beyond causality and relativity, and because of this the Supreme Self is God. The Supreme Self is a fragment of the infinite. The Supreme Self is the infinite, the void, the Buddha nature, and all those things. And that is why you do this through the likeness of the Self. Exactly as Jesus says, and I remember I commented this in a previous commentary where Krishna said to reach the Self by the Self, using that archetype, where is God? What is Nirvana? What is this enlightenment? Use the Supreme Self as a referential point. Exactly in a similar way, and I remember I quoted this on a different spiritual meridian, Jesus says, be perfect, and then he adds, as your Father in heaven is. Like, what does it mean to be perfect? Compared to what? How do we know when we are perfect? Therefore, Jesus has to give a reference, a model, and he says, be you perfect, as your Father in heaven is. Which means, do a copycat. Do Samyama with God. Identify yourself with God. There is a cosmic consciousness called by the Kashmirians Shiva that is perfect, infinite, eternal, absolute, immutable. Be like that. Identify to that. Long for it. Aspire for it. Say, I want to be like you. I want to be like that. I am that. Or like Rumi in a bhakti devotional environment says, one day I shall be a lover like you. He wants to be like God. He, he aspires for perfection. Nothing less than perfection will do. That's the Arabian proverb which says, to trace your path straight, Attach your chariot to a star. Anything else is too short. Attach your chariot to a star. The star may seem infinitely unattainable, but you will follow a straight path because of it. Thus, if you want to get somewhere and you just take a tree as a reference, you get to that tree, then you go to another tree, your path is like this. It zigzags. Attach your chariot to a star, and you go straight, no zigzag. Look up to God, look up to Krishna, or here Krishna relapses again, and he says, he who through the likeness of the self, like, like the self, alike the self, sees everything in equanimity, because the self sees everything in equanimity. Either you are a man or a woman, you have a Supreme Self, a consciousness, a Shiva consciousness in you. That Supreme Consciousness is not different because you are a man or a woman. Either, even if you go, God behave, if you go to hell and spend a thousand years in pain in hell, you still, because hells exist even if you may be skeptical of that, still you have an immortal soul. Even the inhabitants of hell are paying some karmic debts, but they still have an immortal soul. 
and therefore they are not doomed forever. They just spend the time which can be atrociously long in hell, but then afterward they still have an immortal self. There is equanimity everywhere, just like the Supreme Self. If you go to hell, your Supreme Self doesn't just buck out of the game and say, oh no, this bearer of me is going to hell. I can't follow him down there. The Supreme Self is Supreme Self when you are a man or a woman, happy or unhappy, in paradise or in hell, the cosmic consciousness is the same everywhere. And some people, as I said, are very attracted by it. Some people say, Swami, this sounds like a tasteless life in which there is no up and down, there is no joy and sorrow. It seems to me to live a little bit like a robot, to live in a very dispassionate way. I'm made of passion. I'm a very passionate person and I don't know if I can give that up. But that is not the answer to it. Some people are in love with God precisely because God is so great, so special, that it is beyond the ups and downs. For some people, having no ups and downs, having this equanimity, this likeness of the self, for some people it's like you have to cut off your right arm and left arm. You have to cut off the little drama of life. But it's not that. It is that you are replacing it for something with something else. Some people say, why are you looking at the ups and downs of life? There is something, can you realize that you can become that? You can become that great thing which is omnipresent omniscient, omnipotent, which is equal in heaven and hell. You can become that thing which is so powerful, so great, so ubiquitous, so all-pervasive, that it's everything, even the differences between valleys and hills, paradise and hell, won't make any importance for that. Therefore, actually, it's not that the yogis are giving up the drama of life. They are rising into a level which is so much stronger, so much more amazing, so much more glorious, because they rise into something which is stronger than hills and valleys, which is swallowing hills and valleys and can cope with both hills and valleys. Some people are incapable to see that. For some people, the spiritual life still feels like a loss, like you have to give up the drama. But you don't have to give it up. You can follow the tantric path and have hills and valleys in your life. But still, you need to rise to a place in which hills and valleys are transcended. You have to be that thing which is so strong, the there is a Jewish chanting taken over by John Chrysostomus in the Christian mass and used in Christianity, but it's taken from ancient Judaism, in which the spirits of heaven, they are getting goosebumps in front of God, and in awe of God, they shout, Holy God! Holy Deathless One, 
holy strong one and that's where the demons stop the demons get goosebumps by looking at God and saying man I envy the gut of that dude that stands up there on the throne how strong he is how deathless he is how holy God he is and the spiritual people as well as the angels say one more thing they say holy God holy deathless one holy strong one have mercy on us they become humble they don't compete with God in a luciferic way. They bow down and they say, I am thrilled. It's like Brumi who says, I'm thrilled in front of your beauty and in front of your magnificence. I wish I could see you with a hundred eyes. I want to eat God. I want to hug God. I want to become one with God. So much I am impressed, attracted by this cosmic consciousness which is all and everything and it's powerful, omnipresent, omniscient, it's everything. But at the same time, I love it from my heart and this makes me surrender, it makes me humble. Like, have mercy on me. All I can ask is have mercy on me, which is the dimension of the heart. And that is why he who through the likeness of self, this is how you do it, by saying, I want to be like the Supreme Self. I want to be like God. I want to be like the Buddha nature. I want to be like the Shiva consciousness. I want to be that. Why? Because that is the coolest thing you can imagine and way beyond whatever you can imagine. That is indescribable it is unfathomable and some people love that some people are blind spiritually their eye of vision and their spiritual intuition is not open yet enough and then they say well I don't know and then they choose a smaller bone to chew on and that bone is the pleasures of the world not the pleasures again as per se for them because you can have them anyway in a tantric path but the problem is that in your soul you have to go to that higher point which transcends them you have to be ready to go to the full extent so he who through the likeness of the self because you want to be like God sees equality everywhere be pleasure or pain tantric way or non-tantric way it doesn't matter he is regarded as the highest yogi. This is the hierarchy. Krishna, Jesus also was asked, who is going to be the highest in your kingdom? And Jesus gives a typical Jesus answer. Krishna also says, you want to know who is the highest yogi? This is who the highest yogi is. The one who wants to be like that, like God, like me, and the one who has reached to see this equanimity and of course now Krishna said a lot of things and it's time of Arjuna to retort there is an exchange of beautiful replies Arjuna is going to ask one of the million dollar questions because it's the eternal question of anyone who ever did spirituality 
Arjuna being the smart fellow, he sees and he says, this yoga of equanimity described by thee, taught by thee, O Krishna, I do not see its steady continuance, its steady endurance. Like how can somebody be in it 24-7? I, I cannot see that one stands in it because of the restlessness of the mind, because of the weavering of the mind. Like, sure, I'm going to meditate really hard, push my kundalini up and it may bing in Sahasrara, and I see, and I'm having 30 seconds, 2 minutes, whatever, 20 minutes of equanimity, and I am one with God, and it's Samyama, and I'm experienced basically a form of Samadhi, a state of cosmic consciousness, and then my mind wants to say something. There is a story of King Janaka, king turned into spiritual practitioner, and he enters, he tells to his lover, he has a lover, consort, tantric partner, and he tells to his consort, uh, please make some alu gobi. Right? He's Indian, so he asks for some Indian food. I just chose some, try to remember the name of some Indian food from the menu of Indian restaurants. And then he says, well, until you do it, I shall do some meditation. He goes, boom, samadhi. He stays in samadhi for a couple of hours, the food starts getting cold. Then he comes out of samadhi, and then the first thing after he draws breath and so on, he says, is that alu gobi ready yet? And his consort, who is a very spiritual woman, says, you are not fully, fully there, are you? Because if you can go in samadhi for two hours, and as soon as you come out of samadhi, you resume the samskara which you just left before going in samadhi, that samadhi cannot be really very complete, is it? Because it's like you just went into samadhi and as soon as you came back, you said, where is my alu gobi? Which means you didn't forget about your alu gobi, right? What's happening here? So she puts him to shame a little bit. She tells him, it's funny, you know, it's like you could do better than that. She's a real support to him. She is what a spiritual concert is supposed to be. She's not nagging him for her emotional <coughs> problems. She's nagging him for the benefit of the world and for the benefit of their couple and for his own spiritual benefit. She is selfless. She is not a pain in the neck. She is like a guru. She is his guru and he is her guru. So she tells him that and therefore the mind wavers. The man goes in samadhi, stays, comes out, the mind has wavered. You had two hours of oneness. Then you come out of it, you say, where is my alugobi? Where is the oneness? So, Krishna, Arjuna, says, Krishna, it's a bit utopian. You are describing to me a yoga in which people are in equanimity, but I do not see its steady endurance. It can't last. How will somebody do this 24-7? Because of the restlessness of the mind. He's very aware where the problem is. And he continues with a shloka number 34. The previous one was 33. He continues with 34, which is one of the 20 or 10 most quoted shlokas of all the Bhagavad Gita. It's one of the very, very famous, one of the very popular statements, which you may have encountered already under alternative translations. 
Here I'm following mostly the translation by Swami Shivananda and Maharishi Mahesh Yogi as great yogis, very experienced in this. So he said, because of the way restlessness of the mind, and then he says something which is the pain of each and every one of you, if you are indeed spiritual seekers and if you are waging this battle. If you are fighting this war, surely you know what Arjuna is talking about now. If you don't know, it means either you are too young in yoga, in spirituality, in this lifetime, or you are not really trying to push your limits, because you never reached to the point where you faced this. And this is, in the words of Krishna, the, so he says, I cannot see its continuance because of the restlessness of the mind. And he says, 34, the mind verily is restless, turbulent, strong and unyielding. O Krishna, I deem it as difficult to control as to control the wind. The mind is like a wind, right? It's something very immaterial. You can't catch it. It moves wherever it wants, however it wants. Now you are depressed. Now you are elated. Now you think about the past. Now you think about the future. Now you are here. Now you are there. The mind keeps moving. And everybody who did Trataka, meditation, Shambhavi Mudra, whatever, or simply asanas, I want to do 10 minutes of Paschimottanasana and focus on my root chakra, knows it. The mind is the biggest issue. I, you can do it physically and the mind is all over the place. Don't think you are the only one. This is not a problem of Kali Yuga. It existed in the time of Krishna and Arjuna as well. This is how the mind is, because it's something very refined, very ethereal, and it's very difficult to catch. How will you coerce the mind? You can coerce the body, because it's a physical rigid thing. And you say, I want my leg to be stretched, and stretched it stays, and then I do my Janushirshasana, and it has to stay stretched. You can coerce the body, of course, with common sense and moderation still, but you can coerce it. But how do you coerce the mind? You are gazing onto a black dot and wish to do Trataka, and 20 seconds later your mind has gone bananas. How do you coerce it? He says it's difficult to control, it's as difficult as to control the wind. The mind verily is restless, turbulent, strong and unyielding, O Krishna, I deem it, I consider it as difficult to control, as to control the wind. That's his question. Now he says, yeah, you are utopian, you speak about somebody living in oneness, making some yama with the Supreme Self or with God, whatever you want to call it, and then staying there. I can go for five minutes and then I will fall out of there because the mind is restless. So he says, isn't this just a temporary accomplishment and then you relax? Is it realistic to presume that human beings can stay in that state of consciousness? And Krishna gives, of course, an answer. The blessed Lord, Bhagwan, God, Krishna, said, we are now moving to the shloka number 35. 
Undoubtedly, O mighty-armed Arjuna, it's the poetic way of talking, because Arjuna is a warrior, is the arch-warrior, Undoubtedly, O mighty-armed Arjuna, the mind is difficult to control and restless, but it can be restrained by persevering practice and non-attachment. Krishna gives a simple answer. He says there is a way to control the mind, and that is by abhyasa and vairagya. Abhyasa means never give up. Like that beautiful quote from the Dalai Lama, who says if you do not succeed, if you do not, don't give up. Never give up. And he continues giving example after example, and always he compounds with the final remark, never give up. It's the same thing with the spiritual practice. The most stupid thing which you can do in the spiritual practice is give up. The eternal law of spiritual practice is never give up. Like the poem, I don't remember if it was made by the polar explorer, who said, if at first you don't succeed, try, try again. And it continues like a nursery rhyme, all again. If at first you don't succeed, try, try again. Until when? Until the time you die. There is no stop to it. Try, try again. I told you in a previous discourse this quote from a Christian enlightened teacher who was simply repeating 50 times over the word patience. Patience, 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 patience. And he continued absurdly, madly, patience, patience. You want spirituality? Never give up. Try, try again. Patience, patience, patience. Nobody is allowed to give up. It is a pledge for life. I am not holding you to that pledge. This is not a sect or a cult. If you want to run away from yoga, run. But you are running away from yourself. Because the deal is never give up. Those that have this attitude will reach enlightenment. Never give up. That's what brings it one of the two legs of controlling the mind. Even if your mind, says Swami Shivananda, runs away a thousand times, patiently bring it back a thousand times. There is no other way. Never give up. Try, try again. Patience forever. Abhyasa. Persevering practice. You don't stop until you get what you ask for. And vairagya. Vairagya is detachment, non-attachment, non-possessiveness. Vairagya is the Bhagavad Gita word which is the equivalent of aparigraha from the Yoga Sutra of Patanjali. In the Yoga Sutra of Patanjali, Patanjali refers very much to material objects, and that's why he used the word aparigraha, don't grab around, which in Sanskrit is more illustrative for not being attached to objects. 
In the Bhagavad Gita, Krishna prefers to use a synonym of it, which is vairagya, in which is like non-possessiveness, detachment, non-attachment in a wider meaning. It's more metaphysical, more philosophical, this word. And therefore, Krishna says, not only you have to be persevering, but if you are persevering and attached, then you might get some siddhis. This is how you get siddhis, paranormal powers. Like, I want to fly. You can learn levitation. You don't need detachment. You need only abhyasa. You need perseverance. A steel like willpower, a stubborn practice until you start lifting in the air. But you will not reach the cosmic consciousness the same way. To control the mind, which means to be able to transcend it to level number seven, you have to be detached. You have to be persevering without being attached, which is very difficult. People say, I can be persevering if I'm having a project to raise a child or two. I can be persevering if I am to become financially independent and secure. I can be persevering if I want to become healthy, to heal myself. I can be persevering if I want to learn to levitate. But to be persevering without any attachment, like I'm not looking forward to anything really. I'm detached. I'm persevering and detached. Which means like to shoot a shot in the dark. You are shooting in the nowhere. You are not going towards levitation or money or raising children. You are persevering for the sake of God, for the sake of perseverance itself. Those are the two conditions to be able to go beyond the mind, to be detached and to be ever persevering. So Krishna says, I know it's difficult. I know it looks difficult to you, Arjuna, but here is the recipe. Here is the magic formula for controlling that troublesome mind. The mind can be controlled by Abhyasa and Vairagya. And Krishna is forced to acknowledge that this yoga, of course, is not a common thing for everyone on the street. He says in the strophe number 36, I think that yoga is hard to be attained by one of uncontrolled self. Maharishi Mahesh Yogi has said an undisciplined man or woman. One of uncontrolled self. Chaotic. It's not possible to go to the control of the mind and to reach yoga when you don't choose to be disciplined with yourself. But the self-controlled and striving one, self-controlled and striving, persevering, eternally persevering, attains to it by the proper means. Here Krishna again promises. He doesn't really say much. Of course he gives hints, he gives landmarks again. But Krishna acknowledges 
I think that yoga is hard to be attained for the undisciplined man. That's why not everybody that started doing yoga, and I'm not talking about the 20th century yoga as gymnastics. That's not even yoga, really. But out of the people that started some authentic yoga, not everybody reaches to enlightenment in this life. Please do not understand the opposite, like the mind which jumps from one extreme. Oh, if they don't reach, it means they don't do anything. They do something. Krishna himself has said in a previous chapter, on this path of yoga, no effort is ever lost or wasted. It's like you decide to build a wall. And in this life you can manage to put one meter worth of bricks, lay bricks, and then you get tired and you die. Next life when you come to your wall of yoga, one meter is already done. You don't have to start from scratch. Because you did some spiritual effort in a previous life, you don't have to do that much in this life. Because you do spiritual effort in this life, you won't have to do so much in the next life. That's why it's anyway very good to do some spiritual practice, because you never lose anything. People say, what if I come back very late, and until then my wall gets worn out and starts falling apart? This wall which you build with yoga is a metaphor and it's not going ever to fall apart. Therefore, Krishna says it very clearly, on this part of yoga there is never an effort which is wasted or lost. So don't be worried, you are investing in your soul. You are investing in the safest investment place in this universe. You are investing in your own evolution. No effort will be lost. But it is equally true that not everybody will finish building the wall in this life. And that is why Krishna admits yoga might not be for everybody. Yoga in the meaning of samadhi, full yoga, enlightenment. Even Krishna has to admit I think that yoga is hard to be attained by one of uncontrolled self. But the self-controlled and striving one attains to it by the proper means. Attention! Krishna does not say if you are self-controlled and persevering, you attain to it. He feels the need to say he attains to it by the proper means. Which simply says, what your guru teaches you, the method, the path, is very important. Just the fact that you are self-controlled and striving doesn't mean you are going to reach. You need one third ingredient, and that third ingredient is to be taught the proper means. It's not just a blank, blind thing where you just say, oh, I'm very self-controlled, I'm very disciplined, I am very persevering, I shall succeed. Not if you do not have the karma to learn the proper means. Your yoga teacher gives you the proper means. Your yoga teacher may give you inspiration and aspiration for following the path of self-discipline and perseverance. Nevertheless, of course, there is 
quite a bit, which no teacher can do for the pupils, because the pupils have to walk the walk. You have to do your practice as correct as the guidance will be from the teacher, as much inspiration as the teacher pours in you, aspiration, motivation, nevertheless, still the path needs to be practiced. So, Krishna admits here, it is very refreshing, that Krishna admits yoga is not necessarily easy, and not everybody goes all the way. That's what I said before. Some people feel this through a lack of motivation, through a lack of aspiration. There are people who say, honest to God, if somebody would offer to me now nirvana on a silver platter, I would say, uh, not yet, I didn't yet see the Machu Picchu. If you still have to see the Machu Picchu, you won't reach nirvana right now, because your mind wants to see the Machu Picchu. Of course, that's a stupidity of the mind, because you could see the Machu Picchu as an enlightened being afterwards. But still the mind finds it difficult to release the bone, to let go of that bone and simply say, okay, first I surrender and then everything is given to me afterwards. Like Jesus says, first see ye the kingdom of heaven and then everything else is going to be given to you freely and hundredfold. But people don't have the confidence in that. People don't trust in that. And they say, no, 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 I don't know if God will send me to Machu Picchu afterwards. Let me see it right now, just to make sure. You want to take your own responsibility for it, do it, then you don't have the motivation. You say, oh, not yet. I don't know if I'm quite yet prepared for that. Some people feel this trust. Some people feel this, that they can throw themselves head forward. Some people have a sort of crazy fanaticism, I cannot call it anything else, which in fact is aspiration, and they simply say, yes, if I have to die now, I die now. If I have to let go now, I let go now. I trust. I absolutely trust. This is a factor which would create a big difference and it is the one of the psychological motivators there. Therefore, tonight we conclude with this verse number 36, where <coughs> Krishna has said, yes, you can control the mind actually, with abhyasa and vairagya, with perseverance and detachment, and he says, he acknowledges, he admits, I think that yoga is hard to achieve if you do not discipline yourself. Discipline yourself, have perseverance, and use the proper means, and you will attain it. In the next strophe, which we'll read next time, and which probably will be our last time, I hope I'll have to, I'll manage to finish all that paragraph in our next satsang next Thursday, then Arjuna has one further question, like, okay, Krishna answered this one, but he wants to ask a bit more. So Krishna, Arjuna will insist with more questions. <coughs> Enough for tonight. Let us remain in contemplative silence for a couple of minutes so that our minds go into the peace of the self and thus the spiritual message from Krishna settles down and it 
is like a seed that will yield fruits one day in your evolution and after we interiorize and go into this inner peace we will stop and part for tonight and that will do with this we have finished namaste to all of you and see you for the next satsang